Welcome back to the program. Imagine one issue that combines every contemporary progressive social issue, race, immigration, civil rights, the labor movement, gender discrimination. It may sound on the surface like the ultimate impossibility. In fact, they all did converge in the movement for rights for domestic workers. From the 1950s to today, the movement in support of workers who are often the most invisible, whom labor organizations thought could not be organized, is the story of an amazing group of women overcoming unique obstacles in a struggle that had much larger ripples on the social landscape. We're going to talk about this story today with my guest, Pramila Nadison. Pramila is an associate professor of history at Barnard College. She's the author of several previous books, including the award-winning Welfare Warriors. She's a longtime activist and works closely with domestic workers' rights organizations. It is my pleasure to welcome Pramila Nadison to the program to talk about her book, Household Workers Unite, the untold story of African-American women who built a movement. Pramila, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Jeff. It's great to have you here. One of the things about this story that I find so fascinating is the way in which it encompasses so many other issues, that that the civil rights movement, immigration, the labor movement, and, and so many things, are, and gender issues are all part of this discussion, all part of this movement. Absolutely. Uh, African-American domestic workers during the post-war period and then the shift and transition from African-American to immigrant workers more recently, are they're really at the intersection of a whole host of social justice concerns about racial politics, about the question of labor rights, about the issues of gender and social justice. Um, and so these women have been uh, on multiple fronts, struggling for labor rights, as well as racial justice, as well as gender rights. Was there a sense within the movement from the 1950s into the 70s, was there a sense that they really did stand at, at the intersection of all of these issues? They were certainly in dialogue with multiple interest groups in the 1950s, the 60s, the 70s. So many of these women who I write about, uh, Dorothy Bolden in Atlanta, for example, Carolyn Reed in New York City, Josephine Hewlett in Youngstown, Ohio, uh, were very centrally involved in the civil rights movement, that they got their start in the civil rights movement. So they were always in conversation with dominant civil rights organizations that were addressing issues of racial segregation during this period. At the same time, they were employed largely by middle-class women, since it was women uh, in the home who were primarily responsible for taking care of housework. So it was those middle-class employers who were the ones who hired domestic workers. So they were also in conversation with the women's movement and with middle-class women. And that raised all kinds of questions for them about the ways in which women, whether they were housewives or whether they were paid domestic workers, were, were primary, primarily responsible for household labor. And in fact, middle-class women and domestic workers were able to develop alliance around this very issue, around the ways in which housework and household labor was primarily women's work. They were also in conversation with the labor movement because the labor movement had marginalized them for the most part. Yet these women 
developed very innovative strategies for labor organizing. And in fact, we see today the ways in which certain wings of the labor movement, the Service Employees International Union, for example, has been increasingly reaching out to domestic workers. And yet the labor movement didn't really act in a supportive way for a long time to their cause. No, it didn't. And I think part of that is a particular kind of work that domestic workers do. They are employed in the privacy of the home. They are doing the uh, unpaid work of social reproduction. That is the cooking, the cleaning, the caring that is necessary to maintain life. But very often, because it's located in the home, because many people do that work out of love, um, it's often not considered real work. It's not recognized as labor in the same way that other kinds of occupations are. And domestic work was one of those occupations that was excluded from many of the labor regulations of the 1930s that gave most workers things like minimum wage and social security and unemployment benefits. So that was part of the struggle in the 1960s and the 1970s was for those basic labor protections and uh, and for to recognize domestic work as work. So that also inhibited the labor movement, I think, from directly tackling this issue and thinking about the ways in which domestic work, in fact, was an occupation and a workforce that needed to be organized. In many ways, it seems like it was a vicious cycle with respect to the labor movement because there were no standards, because there were no guidelines. It really set the stage for the labor movement not to do anything, and because they didn't do anything, it continued without those standards and guidelines. That's right. That's right. I mean, much of the labor movement has been premised on a particular model of labor organizing, and that's a model of labor organizing that's centered on uh, the manufacturing sector that assumes that people are working in very large uh, settings on the factory floor, for example, and that the organizing takes place in those settings. So we have the model, for example, of the United Auto Workers, where in the 1930s they developed massive organizations, they had sit-down strikes, and that's a very male-centered model of labor organizing. Much of the work that women do is not in the manufacturing sector, it's in the service sector. It involves work like cooking and caring and cleaning, and it's very isolated work. Domestic workers are working in individual homes. They have multiple employers. One worker might have three or four employers. Um, So I think because of the nature of the occupation, a very different model of labor organizing is necessary. And that's one of the things that I think is most remarkable about reading about this history and even just looking around us now at the ways in which domestic workers are organizing is how they are developing completely innovative strategies uh, for how to bring together this workforce. To what extent did cultural stereotypes, particularly as it related to African-American women in the home, to what extent did those stereotypes play a role in in all of this? African-American women who were employed as household workers were very often seen as a stereotypical mammy figure. And this is a stereotype that dates back to the 19th century, but it really became popularized in the 1930s with the publication of Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind. And this was a stereotype that saw African-American women as working uh, for a white family, very loyal to that family, and happily serving that white family. 
the household worker had no no needs of her own, had little commitment to her own family. She's simply there to serve the white family. And she's very deferential. And I think that that dominant stereotype of a very subservient domestic worker uh, is one that has plagued the occupation, one that has shaped the ways in which African-American women uh, have been viewed as servants. And this was a stereotype that many of these women who organized in the 60s and 70s really tried to challenge. So, for example, they uh, they argued that the work that they were doing was work and that they were, in fact, not, not subservient, that they had needs of their own. They wanted to be treated not as one of the family, uh, but rather as workers who had rights. Um, and so all of this played uh, a very important role in reshaping the occupation. I think this was perhaps best summed up in the ways in which they wanted to be called. Um, so they didn't want to be called domestic workers. They didn't want to be called servants. They didn't want to be called maids. They wanted to be called household technicians. And that term became very important because for them it signified the ways in which their work required skill, and required training. Um, and so they didn't want to be treated as servants who were at the beck and call of their employers at all hours of the day, but rather as professional women who had their, a, a specific set of skills that they would be paid adequately for. What role did the white employers play as this movement started to evolve? One would imagine, and it was in fact true, that there was ongoing conflict and tension between employers and employees. It was often the employers who was expecting too much of employees, asking them to do things outside of what was considered acceptable uh, responsibilities. It was the employers who was, who was often underpaying them. Yet at the same time, part of what this movement did is it developed a very strong al- employers alliance many of the women who employed household workers developed employer support groups. Many of the feminists who were active in the 1960s and the 1970s worked very closely with the domestic worker rights movement. So Gloria Steinem, for example, was one of the biggest supporters of the domestic worker rights movement. The National Organization for Women also advocated and supported much of their work. One of the primary goals of the movement was to advocate for minimum wage protections um, that domestic workers had been excluded from. And so they lobbied for and helped pass in 1974 amendments to the Fair Labor Standards Act, which did eventually give them federal minimum wage protection. And middle class women were very, very important allies in the struggle. They testified before Congress. They worked closely with the movement uh, to develop a strategy on how to enforce the minimum wage legislation once it was passed as well. And in many ways, that was an outgrowth of, of the women's movement at the time. Absolutely. And there was a, almost a natural connection between the women's movement and the domestic worker rights movement in that both of these groups of women had essentially been saddled with the labor of housework, right, in one way or another. Uh, Middle-class women felt confined to the household, right? They felt uh, unable to go outside the household and, and have access to job opportunities that men had. And so for them, housework was often a burden. Domestic workers as well were 
essentially saddled with housework too because they had been, especially African-American women, had been confined to that occupation and were mistreated and underpaid in that occupation. So it was a devaluation of that work, both for paid workers as well as for those who did it for no pay, that made uh, this alliance possible, recognizing the ways in which women's work generally uh, was devalued relative to men's work. And were there individual specific women within the effort to organize that understood this alliance and that were really were able to take advantage of it as far as the movement was concerned? Absolutely. Many of the women I write about, Carolyn Reed in New York, uh, Geraldine Miller, who also organized in New York, very consciously reached out to feminists and developed alliances with feminists. And many of them, in fact, call themselves feminist as well. And I think that's very important uh, because it suggests the ways in which we need to broaden and expand our very definition of what the women's movement was. It wasn't only the middle-class women who were seeking job, job opportunities outside the home, but it also included paid household workers who were advocating for rights uh, in, in the occupation um, of domestic labor as well. All of this would start to change, though, come the early 80s with, with more immigrant women taking these jobs. Talk about that. Yeah. At the very moment when African-American women began to organize, and they started to get together in 1955 and really expanded through the 60s and the 70s, in 1971 they formed a national organization that uh, had a membership of 25,000 women. But at that very moment when they developed this national organization in the 1970s, the occupation at that time began to shift as well. So uh, because of changes in immigration law in the 1960s, an increasing number of immigrant women began to enter the country and many of them ended up doing domestic work. Uh, the African-American women who headed this movement really grappled with and struggled with how to deal with the influx of immigrant workers. And I was not sure what to expect when I started doing this research, this research but I was very surprised to learn that they, in fact, didn't take a xenophobic position, but they instead attempted to reach out to embrace and organize immigrant domestic workers. Uh, and they wanted to develop an alliance between the African-American community and the immigrant community. And many of them recognized the ways in which many immigrant women were experiencing the very same things that they had experienced as African-American domestic workers, that in fact it was the labor, it was the occupation, and it was the treatment on the job that tied these two communities together. Was there a sense of it being competitive in some ways, that, that the immigrant population were, were taking these jobs and taking advantage of so much of the organizational work that the African-American women had done? I'm sure, I'm sure there was a certain level of competition, and I'm, I'm, I think I'm sure there was a certain level of resentment as well. And the women who I write about are really just a small percentage of the African-American women who are in the occupation. Most women were not organized. So I don't know how representative they were of the entire occupation, uh, but as organizers, they really did believe that uh, employers turned to immigrant labor because it was cheaper, that they deliberately sought out undocumented immigrants 
because they would they could undercut uh, the wages of African American women domestic workers, and so I think there was a realization that that was part of how the labor market worked. Uh, but at the same time, they understood that as a problem, not in terms of the immigrants who were coming in, but in terms of strategies that employers were using to try to get the cheapest uh, labor possible. How, if at all, was this different in the North versus the South? There are, um, you know, different histories in the North and the South. So in the South, uh, the occupation was really tied to the history of slavery. And many of the women who organized in the South uh, were very connected to their own history and the ways in which their families had, or their four, their four mothers had been enslaved, had often worked in a very similar occupation as well. Uh, but ultimately, I think, because uh, after World War I and World War II, African-American women migrated from the South to the North, and they also became the dominant domestic labor force in the North, um, but that question of race and the question of the history of slavery ultimately tied together African-American women uh, in the North as well as the South. So, I'd, you know, I'm not sure there were many differences be, uh, between the North and the South. Um, and, and many of the women I write about had actually lived in the South. So they migrated uh, from Southern communities into Northern communities. One of the other areas that you write about is the places and the ways that they organized that because they were in the private confines of homes and, and invisible in so many ways that they had to use public spaces as a way to organize. Talk about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is part of the innovative labor organizing strategies that I had mentioned uh, because they didn't fit the typical model of what a labor movement was. Uh, they organized. They they couldn't organize uh, in their place in in their workplaces. They simply couldn't because they were very often the only workers there. It was very hard to tell where domestic workers were employed, which houses employed them. Because of that, the public spaces, public parks, city buses became central sites of organizing. And Dorothy Bolden in Atlanta perhaps did this best. Uh, She rode the city bus lines in Atlanta, handing out leaflets uh, as African-American women boarded buses in largely black neighborhoods to go to communities in largely white neighborhoods where they worked as domestics for the day. So Bolden would ride these buses in the morning and she would ride them in the afternoon, handing out her leaflets uh, as a way to organize and mobilize and to let women know about the organization she had started in Atlanta. And we see something very similar happening today. There's actually a very vibrant domestic worker rights movement today, uh, local chapters as well as a national organization and they do something very similar. They organize in the public parks. They organize in public spaces. Um, and so I think that that offers us a model of labor organizing that's a little different from what we know. To what extent was any of this political activism as well? I know that, I mean, you write about them lobbying legislatures. And, and to what extent was, was there a public policy agenda in all of this? There was definitely a public policy agenda, and that included getting legislation passed to give them the same uh, labor rights that other workers were entitled to. So they wanted unemployment compensation. They wanted federal minimum wage protection, uh, things like that. 
Um, so getting those labor rights was definitely a cornerstone of the movement. But I also think the public image, this idea of transforming the ways in which domestic work was seen, the ways in which African-American women as domestic workers were seen. So transforming the public image was also incredibly important to these women. That's, and that's why they wanted to call themselves household tech technicians. That's why they wanted to be seen not as servants, but as workers. And how does all this history fit in with, with where the movement is today? The movement today uh, doesn't have a direct connection to this earlier history, but many of the women who are organizing today know about the previous generation of domestic workers who organized. One of the women who I interviewed for my book is Barbara Young, who is an organizer with the National Domestic Workers Alliance today. And Barbara Young uh, talks about women like Dorothy Bolden and women like Elizabeth Barksdale Sloan and draws inspiration from the work that came before, thinks of the organizing she's doing now as building upon what had taken place previously. So I think there's an important kind of intellectual connection between the movement of the 60s and the 70s and the movement today. And in looking at the movement today, is it still seen as a labor movement? What, if any, connection is there to organized labor? You mentioned the SEIU before. To what extent have they been involved in keeping this movement going forward? The SEIU has played a very important role in organizing home care workers. Home care workers are a slightly different category than the domestic workers that I look at because home care workers tend to be employed by a third-party agency, a state agency, for example, or a nonprofit that sends out uh, household workers to help somebody who might be disabled or unable to care for themselves. Um, And so they have the power of collective bargaining, that is, a state agency might employ literally thousands of uh, home care workers, and so collectively those home care workers could put pressure on the state agency, uh, threatening to strike uh, or something like that. Um, So the SEIU has been very important in terms of that. Much of the other innovative organizing has happened with private uh, house cleaners, nannies, and caretakers, and that is people who are employed by an individual household and paid for by that household. So the model is a little bit different there. But I think that uh, what we're seeing increasingly in our economy is that more and more American workers generally are coming to experience very similar labor conditions to what domestic workers experience. That is, there are more and more precarious workers in the economy, and these are workers who are working part-time, who might be subcontracted or might be independent contractors, who are not guaranteed pensions, who are not guaranteed health benefits, who are contingent workers. And so when we think about, for example, Uber drivers, right, who are essentially self-employed or call self-employed, but really are not guaranteed any benefits or even guaranteed wages, or adjunct faculty at colleges and universities who are teaching an increasing number of courses uh, at colleges and universities. These are are, uh, categories of employment that are increasingly coming to represent the conditions that that domestic workers are employed under. And so I think in that way, domestic workers can offer a lesson for 
other sectors of the economy as well. But in fact, it is possible to organize people who are relatively isolated workers. It is possible to, to organize people who have multiple employers over the course of a lifetime. It is possible to organize people who, in fact, don't have a strong union behind them and find it very difficult to organize uh, in a traditional union setting. Pramila Nadison, her book is Household Workers Unite. It's just out from Beacon Press. Pramila, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you very much. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 